This is Queen Victoria. Welcome to Murder Lab, the podcast where I don't just discuss one serial killer, I discuss several serial killers and something they have in common. This week is another Igor week, so stay tuned for Igor to do part two of the last episode. Some bidness before we let Igor take it away. A few reminders, we have Podcast in the Park coming up, sponsored by Queen Victoria and Murder Lab. It will be in at Eastwood Metro Park, Saturday, May 22nd at 1 o'clock p.m. I will be posting on the event page on Facebook where exactly it will be on the day of. If you are a podcaster, please feel free to show up. It is just an informal way for local podcasters to get together and hang out and find out about each other and trade information and commiserate with each other over podcasting things. Or if you know someone who is a podcaster in the area, please feel free to let them know about it. It's a podcast in the park. You can go to the Murder Lab Facebook page and find it under events there. Or you can search Podcast in the Park to find that. We also are excited to announce that we will be giving free merch away. If we get to 20 ratings, we will get give each person who rated some free merch. So make sure you go out to your podcast app of choice and rate us on there. We'll be keeping you updated. It ends on June 6th. So make sure you get in there. You still got a couple weeks, but make sure you get in there and rate. We are also excited because we now have an ad for Murder Lab in Sparkle Comic. Where can you get Sparkle Comics? You can get it at our friends at GameSwap. So thank you again to Matt Brassfield and the crew out there. We appreciate everything you do for us. We will be going to CrimeCon in June. If you would like more information, you can go to CrimeCon.com. And my understanding is that you can still join virtually. So if you cannot purchase tickets and go see the event, you can possibly watch it virtually. So make sure you go to crimecon.com and get more information. Some of the podcasts that will be there, according to their site, are Colts, Crimes, and Cabernet, Hide and Seek, Fruit Loops, Crimepedia, Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, and Choir Practice with Mac and Manina. Those are just a, a few of them that will be there. Again, you can go to crimecon.com for more information. I know we're excited to go and spread the word of Murder Lab. We aren't actually official guests or have a booth or anything like that, but we are happy to go and just put our business cards and Murder Lab stuff all over the place. Well, without further ado, I will turn it over to Igor. Thank you for entering the lab. Good evening, Lab Rats. I have some exciting news here from Igor Mutileus. I now have an official title for my episodes. It's been a little joke with V and I for months, probably six months or something, where I would text her a title that I was thinking and she wouldn't respond. So it got to be where it was a game I play where I would be serious about it and then maybe just, you know, put like 
chocolate milk. Igor's chocolate milk. Just to see if she would respond to no avail. But out of the blue, the other day, she texted me that she had the name. So I am proud to present Crime Keeper. So it's like Crypt Keeper, but with true crime. Welcome, welcome. Crime Keeper a taze. Also, we do still need more ratings for the podcast. So please go to the platform of your choice and provide one. And also continue to talk it up our little pod to others. I want to walk down streets being showered with golden fish heads. I just, it's a visual I have by all my fans just throwing them on me and at me. And I'm okay with it. I wanted to give a murder lab newsflash. It was about that love is one cult. And then Saturday, listening to last podcast and the boys had done it. I was uh, getting ready to record and I just so happened to be on Facebook. I'm part of the Columbarinos. It's the Murderinos for Columbus, in case you're interested. My favorite murder podcast. And someone sent had a link that a family member was cleaning out father's home, discovers human remains. This is in Maine, Casco, Maine. And I guess this 84-year-old dude, 82, Douglas Scott, the relatives made that discovery after he they were cleaning out his place. The police described the discovery as suspicious. They found skeletal remains. Of course it's suspicious. Now, dude died earlier in the year. Family probably with life, you know, just getting around to cleaning things out. But uh, the police also go on to say that uh, there's no need to be upset. You know, don't feel like there's a danger in the public. I just think that's kind of funny. So I guess they're trying to get some DNA together to find a match if possible, but it's going to take several weeks. So I do have a news flash, just not the one that I initially had wanted to give you. Let's get right on into part two. I have a trigger warning in the title of Don't Lose Your Head Part Two because we have a few stories this week involving children. And although it's really important to keep these out in the public, it's especially difficult to fathom, but we want to keep them out there in case there are new leads to be had. Wanted to put that out there. Without further ado, see what I did there? Part do, ado. We are going to start with number five. Now, we did last time four, obviously, of the ten, the most horrifying murders from the Kremil website. We're going to start with five, the Hinterkaifeck Massacre. The word hinterkaifeck may sound like a light gravy sauce or a type of vegan sausage, but according to Place SNC, the prefix hinter, which is part of many German location names, means behind, and kaifeck is a nearby town, so behind kaifeck. So it's the unofficial name of the house we're going to be talking about, this farm, and the location of a ferociously heinous family annihilation. Maybe you've heard of it. In keeping with part one, this too, it's a baffling crime, and no one has been persecuted or even apprehended. Hint, I say, for the authorities. They most likely have toenail fungus of the soul, so you can kind of be on the lookout for that. The Gruber family lived in Bavaria back in the 1920s. One day, the entire family just stopped showing up at church, work, school, market. So a group decided to go to their house for a wellness check. Andreas the father, his wife, daughter, two grandchildren, and the maid were all found stabbed to death in various parts of the home. What really made everyone's blood run cold was when they realized the farm 
had still been maintained, despite the family being dead for weeks. The cows were milked, food was cooked, everything was cleaned up, smoke was even seen coming out of the chimney. It became clear that someone had been living on the farm when the, fa when the killings were committed. In the days leading up to the murders, Andreas had actually mentioned that he heard some strange noises coming from the attic, and he spotted strange footprints on newspapers throughout his farm. Must have been a clean farm, huh? Killer was never caught, no leads were uncovered, and I think I said persecuted previously when I meant prosecuted, so... Due to the lack of evidence, it's likely that Gruber's family unsolved murders will continue to stay a mystery. Now, this was from that website that I've been uh, referencing, Criminal. I did go find for more specifics. I went out and found from Ranker.com, associated with this, 11 disturbing facts about the unsolved Hinterkaifeck murders. And this is from Kat McAuliffe, June 14th of 2019. The first tidbit, the family was murdered with a pickaxe. March 31st, 1922, Andreas and Kazelia Gruber, their daughter, Victoria, it's V-I-K-T-O-R-I-A, not like R-V, Victoria's children, Joseph and Kazelia, I guess Kazelia Jr., little Kazelia, and the family's housekeeper, Maria Baumgartner, were murdered at their farm called Hinterkaifeck. They lived in a town that's not now known as Wavehoden, Germany. A doctor performed the autopsies on the six victims and determined that they had probably been killed with a mattock, M-A-T-T-O-C-K, which is a hand tool used in farming that has a long handle and a wide head with a chisel at one end and a blade in the other. I looked it up, so think of a miner's tool, and I just, ugh. So monstrous to hurt someone like that. The maid was murdered in her bedroom, while Joseph, he was only two, was killed in his crib in his mother's room, while the remaining family members were murdered in the barn, leading the authorities to develop a very dis disturbing theory, which takes us to the next tidbit. The victims were probably lured there to the barn one by one. Andreas, Kazilia, the big one, Victoria and their granddaughter, little Kazilia, was found there. Joseph and Maria were in the main house. The investigators concluded that the killer lured the four victims to the barn one at a time, systematically attacking them with that mattock. So when I initially heard of that word mattock, I have to admit I thought of Matlock because I grew up then. And... I have a visual now of Andy Griffith holding a pickaxe. The corpses were then stacked on each other and covered in hay. Next tidbit, one of the victims was so scared she tore out her hair. This is horrible. Not that none of the rest of this is, but seven-year-old Kazelia, little Kazelia, was found with bald patches all over her head where she had torn the hair out where the investigators assumed she had because of her pain as she just laid in there. And it's so sad for me to think of that. Beside the bodies of her family. Just, ugh, it's just horrendous. The next tidbit, the killer probably stayed in the house for days after the murders. 
Now, the family wasn't found until four days later as the neighbors saw smoke from the chimney. I know the previous reference said weeks, so this is why I always check things. So they said it was just four days. They didn't know that the family, anything was wrong because, of course, they saw smoke from the chimney. Animals seemed fine. Everything seemed taken care of. Dude was playing house with the bodies decomposing around him or her. It reminded me of the Velisca Axe murders with the cigarettes that were found in the attic. They assumed that the person or persons were there waiting, smoking, for them to fall asleep so they could creep down and do the murders. Also, an axe was used. It's similar to a pickaxe, but the big difference is the bodies were found the next morning in the Velisca Axe murders when no one from the Moore family was taking care of the farm and so a neighbor called a brother just too much act stuff going on then yes next tidbit more than a hundred suspects were interviewed that's all the article really states so i checked good old wikipedia and it says a craftsman vagrants and several inhabitants from the surrounding villages were interviewed by the Kripo, k-r-i-p-o that apparently is the name of the german police or that conglomeration that takes care of it that level, I guess. Despite repeated arrests, no murderer has ever been found and the files were closed in 1955. Even so, the last interrogations took place in 86. Some of the suspects included Victoria's supposed dead husband, which we'll get into here in a minute, Joseph's baby daddy, the Gump brothers, which is real fun to say, but they also are the siblings of Adrius. The most interesting to me is Paul Mueller. If you've read the book, The Man from the Train, which I have, it's a, an author and his daughter that write about it. The authors link him to, un, to known axe murders in the United States, and he was a German immigrant. So I find that interesting. Next tidbit, a series of strange events happened before the killings. So I had mentioned about, he said he had heard some strange noises, he had seen some footprints, it says here in the months and weeks leading up to the massacre, a number of strange events occurred on the farm. Maria Baumgartner, who was the maid, was murdered on her very first night working for the family because the previous housekeeper had quit six months earlier saying that the house was haunted. Neighbors told police that the family's patriarch had reported several strange incidents, including the footprints, this says in the snow, leading toward the farm, with none leading away from the property, and also footprints in the attic. People speculate the killer may have been hiding in the house for a long period of time, La Velisca, and Andreas also said his neighbors told his neighbors his keys had gone missing and he'd found a strange newspaper in the house. He declined to borrow a gun from one of his neighbors to protect himself and his family. Oy. But you know what? If they got the drop on him, it wouldn't really help, but he would have had something. Next to the bit, the father and daughter reportedly had an incestuous relationship. Gross. Andreas and Victoria were convicted of incest in 1915. Get this. She served a one-month sentence in jail for her crime while her father was sent away for an entire year. But she had to set... Now, she's the victim here, but she has to serve time because, you know, she let it happen, apparently. Some of the neighbors believe the child, Joseph, was the product of Andreas's relationship with his daughter. 
this would imply that the father and daughter continued having sex with each other for years after the incest conviction. The true identity of Joseph's father remains a mystery to this day. Dun dun dun. Next tidbit. The victim's skulls were allegedly sent to a clairvoyant. So a doctor performed the autopsies in the barn where those four had been found. The court physician removed the heads of all the victims, which reportedly he sent to Munich for further examination. Allegedly, the skulls of the Grubers and their maid were given to clairvoyance, presumably in an, effect, in an effort to learn more about the perpetrator or perpetrators who had committed the brutal massacre. I don't, I guess they would hold the skulls and get a sense of the person. I don't know, put their fingers in the eye sockets, see if they could see. I don't know. The victim's skulls were kept in Munich and they were buried without their heads. The skulls went missing following the upheaval after World War II and were never recovered. Mm. So that's kind of rumor. Still, interesting rumor. Next tidbit, they may have been killed by Victoria's husband, who was presumed to be dead. Told you we'd get back to this. So this theory was that Lawrence Schlittenbauer, yikes, sounds like a beer, the neighbor who many thought was the father of Victoria's son, Joseph. He was also the man who allegedly offered to lend Andreas a gun when he mentioned the strange events that had occurred at the farm part of the murders. Another popular theory was that the Grubers and the, and the maid were killed by Carl Gabriel, Victoria's husband. He had been reported killed in action 1914, right? World War I. So supporters of this theory say that he didn't actually die in combat. They speculate that he returned to the farm after several years, realizing that his wife had been with another man, resulting in baby Joseph. He murdered them in a fit of rage. Interesting. Next tidbit. The farm was raised and replaced with a memorial. Just a year after the murders, they raised the farm and they put up the memorial. In addition to the simple concrete shrine, there's a memorial to the victims in the Wadehofen Cemetery where the Grubers and their housekeeper were laid to rest. It's a good thing they just got rid of it. That's just creepy. Next tidbit. A woman contacted the police in 1999 with a lead. So this old chick, she calls the authorities, claims that her former landlord admitted to having information about the killings. The officials investigated the tip, learned the landlord supposedly made this claim back in 35. However, it was too late as the potential suspect was dead. In 2007, more than 80 years later, students at a German police academy used modern techniques to investigate the unsolved case. They ruled out all but one suspect they believed to have committed the murders. However, since the suspect is dead, they won't come out and publicly name the person because of the relatives are still alive. Mm. Mm -mm. So that's our first one, our fifth one, I should say. And we're going to be moving on now. This next one, it does have to do with a child. It's the boy in the box. Some of you may have heard of this in Philadelphia in 1957. A box was found labeled fragile by kids in a park. As some of us murderinos would do, they opened the box and were traumatized by what they saw. Inside was a bassinet in the body of a young boy around four years of age. He was less than three and a half feet tall, weighed about 30 pounds, and heartbreakingly, he showed serious signs of abuse. 
He had a number of scars that appeared to be from surgery and a black substance found in his throat. Now, they did trace the box to a local JCPenney where the bassinet appeared to be purchased from. Police questioned the people they figured that could trace the bassinet to, but to no avail. No one ever came forward to identify the child, which always is just so sad. Neither the boy's identity nor his murder, murderer was ever discovered. This makes it one of the saddest murders of all time. Now that's the tidbit, the part from the criminal site. I went to find some more because it's just, it's begging for more information, right? We need to have, I need more for closure, I guess, if you can ever really get that. So I went to CBS3 Mysteries, KMOV, and this source says that he was six years old. And the homicide detective, Kohlmeyer, asked, can we just give him a name? So there are a lot of people that are involved in these that they, they want so bad to have something. They're, they find a connection and they search for it. Many of them, even after they retire, still can't give up. They want that. They want to give some dignity to that person, maybe their family. He says that he remembers growing up in Fox Chase and at 10 years old, hearing about the boy that was found along the Susquehanna Road in a box. He said the cause of death is listed as blunt force trauma. He appeared to be cleaned and freshly groomed with a haircut. Homicide Captain Jason Smith says this case continues to nod him. Philadelphia homicide detectives two years ago got an order to exhume the remains of the boy. What they were able to retrieve this time for DMA purposes were sent to a lab in Europe, and this could give them their biggest break yet. Now they do have a DNA profile that they hope leads them to family members, and Smith said, we owe it to the child, we owe it to their family members. So that's always heartening, although very sad. But I did continue to look because I wondered if there was any newer developments in the case, and I found something from Philadelphia CBS Local, and you may have heard about the VDOC Society. It says here that they, the VDOC Society believes they are close to figuring out the boy in the box in a 61-year-old Philly cold case. Now, this was just written November 11th of 2020. And it says that the VDOC Society hosts a memorial service every year for the boy. They are a group of independent investigators, which a lot of us know. They say that advances in the DNA technology is helping them in their quest to find out what happened. The boy in the box is also known as America's Unknown Child, and this says that he was between four and six, so that seems to be the consensus in his age. His death is the Philadelphia Police Department's longest open cold case. In 98, the body was exhumed to test for DNA. He was then reburied at Ivy Hill Cemetery in a donated plot on November 11th of 1998. There has been, with the last six months, extraordinary progress from sources all over the world, said Howard Lebkowski. Lebowski? It feels like something is about to move on this case, and I really hope that it does. So I'm glad I, I searched and found something because it gives me some hope. Number seven, the murder in broad daylight. Now, I've heard about this before, and it is unsolved, but check this out. This is one of those stories that some people may think falls into the category of setting things right, and others may feel that it's the epitome of vigilante justice, let me know your thoughts. Go to our social media, Facebook, Insta, and let's start that discussion because I'm curious to find out what you think. So dude's name 
was Ken Rex McElroy. Can't go wrong with that name. And he was not a popular man in his town. He was known as a neighborhood bully who would regularly torture animals, steal from neighbors, and was arrested for child molestation and rape a number of times. Despite this, he never quite got jail time, except for the last time he got cuffed when he shot a 70-year-old grocer. Police finally had enough evidence to book him. When he got out on bail, he began to harass the local pastor and others who were sympathetic to the old man's plight. Now, he didn't kill the dude, but he shot him. After that, he appeared in a bar with a gun and threatened to finish off the grocer that he had shot. The next day, he was shot to death in broad daylight in the middle of a public setting. The police questioned everyone. No one was willing to say a word. Many of the people present did not want the murder to ever be solved, and they've really worked to make sure it hasn't. So, it remains that way. That's all this little tidbit here, but... When I was searching for other information, I found IMDb had a movie listed from 2019 called No One Saw a Thing, The Killing of Ken Rex McElroy. Didn't check it out. Maybe I will. I went to my good old Morbidology because they seem to come through for me a lot on finding out some interesting tales. This is titled The Town That Got Away With Murder, Ken Rex McElroy by Emily Thompson. This is from October of 2017. And the town was actually Skidmore, and it was in Missouri, 1981. They only had 440 residents and a number of small family-run businesses, like most small towns do. But it's mostly a farming town that they all have really good work ethic. So good old Americana, basically. McElroy was described as a real bag of dicks, weighing in at approximately 270 pounds with bushy black sideburns. He had the entire town under his thumb. He always had a gun wherever he wanted, did whatever he wanted, took whatever he wanted, and nobody dared to ask questions, hence the bully. He was born, get this, 15 out of 16 children, and his parents were poor sharecroppers. Molester McElroy, which I refer to him as, was illiterate due to quitting school after the fifth grade. And you might be shocked to hear that trouble seemed to follow him wherever he went throughout his life. When he was a young boy, he fell from a hay wagon. We always got those head injuries for the killers. And as a result, had a steel plate that was implanted into his head, causing people to question if that was the catalyst that caused him to become the abominable character that he eventually morphed into. His criminal career started off with petty crimes such as stealing livestock. I mean, what are you gonna do? But soon escalated, predominantly in violence. Over the years, McElroy, who was a raging alcoholic and notorious womanizer, you know what I'm going to say, you like a depoose, was married multiple times, fathering a total, mm -hmm, following in his family footsteps, of 15 children, with a horde of different women, many of them just being teenagers, because he's gross. And, speaking of gross, here's a gross fact. He met his youngest and last wife, Trina, in 70, 1971, when she was 12 years old, and just two years later, she was pregnant. Ugh. Unsurprisingly, he mistreated her, and she eventually attempted to escape from his evil self by fleeing to her parents' house with her newborn son. So, meat-headed McElroy refused to let her get away, followed her to her parents' house, and once there, shot their dog and set the house on fire. Oh, and doesn't stop there. He went ahead and abducted Trina back to their house, where he beat her for her perceived misconduct. 
Katrina did report the arson and abuse to a local doctor who called a social welfare agency and put her in a foster home because remember, this child is a mother in a foster home because she's a child. That's a mother at 14. I just, I'm shaking my head, but there's a tear. So facing molestation charges for beginning a sexual relationship with said child, Crazy Kenny discovered that if he were to marry Trina, then she would be exempt from testifying against him. He was granted permission to marry Trina by her panic-stricken parents because he threatened that if he didn't get their permission, he'd burn their new home to the ground. So what do you do? The citizens of Skidmore were so terrified of his brutality and revenge that he could potentially exact on them that everybody refused to testify against him. His attorney, Richard McFadden, would later say that he defended McElroy in at least three or four felonies a year. So I'm wondering, did he keep him on retainer, uh, paying him in Billy Beer? Do you guys remember Billy Beer? Look it up if you're not old like me. 1980. One of the kids that he had with Trina was caught stealing candy at the grocery store, owned by 70-year-old Bo Bowencamp, love it, and considered it a misunderstanding. The grocer said, you know what, this happens, and he tried to make peace with the family. Well, old Ken Rex refused to let it slide and unleashed a barrage of terror, first by offering the elderly wife of Bo, named Lois, to engage in a fight with his much younger and stronger wife. Then, when that didn't uh, pan out, he turned to intimidation tactics. So, you know, doing well-adjusted neighborly things like sitting outside the Bowen Camp's residence in a truck, every so often shooting off his gun in the air. The grocer said my neighbor and I took turns sleeping at night. How scary. In July, Bo Bowen Camp the grocer was standing outside on the loading dock of his store waiting for an air conditioning repairman when old Ken shows up and produces a gun and just shoots him in the neck. In the neck! Bo, like I said, survived, but this senseless attempted murder was completely the straw that broke the camel's back. The town lost their shit. McElroy was soon convicted of the attack, but released on bail, shocking the entire community. Within hours, McElroy was ready to exact his revenge on Bo and the witnesses that testified against him. Knowing this, town got together, wrote a number of letters to the Missouri authorities, the governor, attorney general, state legislators, expressing that they were living in fear of McElroy and wanted to finally see some justice, but their pleas were ignored. McElroy was soon seen in the D&G Tavern, his local haunt, brandishing an M1 rifle with a bayonet attached to it. This, of course, violated the terms of his bail, but his attorney somehow managed to postpone his appeal hearing, not once, but twice, pissing everybody off. July 10th, 1981, the town gathers at Legion Hall, as you do, to discuss what to do about raging Rexy after the second postponement. No one knows what took place inside that hall, but when the meeting ended, the town made their way to the D&G Tavern, where they encountered McElroy and Trina climbing into his Chevy Silverado, where McElroy was armed with his beloved rifle and a six-pack of beer. And I'm sure, like, I imagine a full attire of the rebel flag, more Mountain Dew on the dash. Moments later, shots rang out, and the town intimidator sat dead in his car. 
his bloody body riddled with bullets with his wife screaming in the front passenger seat. So Trina was there. Luckily, she wasn't hurt. She wasn't their target, though. Despite at least 40 people witnessing him being shot, every single one refused to confess who had fired the fatal shots. Not one person called an ambulance as he lay bleeding. Postmaster Jim Hartman said, I can't think of anyone who'd seen it, the shooting, feel any differently than you would about the people who invented penicillin. Nobody tried to hang them for finding a way to kill a germ. That kind of, that, that summarizes things nicely, doesn't it? When police eventually arrived, they discovered shell casings from both a 22 caliber Magnum and an 8 millimeter Mauser pointing to two shooters. An investigation uncovered that McElroy had been shot by two separate people. One had been positioned behind the truck, one a half block in front of the truck. Regardless of how many witnesses to the murder, which took place again in broad daylight, nobody was ever charged, and the jury concluded that McElroy was killed by a person or persons unknown. Passenger Trina claimed that she knew one of the shooters, but nobody would corroborate what she said, so that person couldn't be indicted. Town has kept their silence ever since. They feel as though they owe nothing to a man who vandalized and terrorized them for decades. It's a true tale of comeuppance that could easily have been avoided if the law and court had cracked down on McElroy when necessary. I know why they don't talk. They were all glad he's dead. That town got away with murder, his attorney would later say. So, wow. My first thoughts were after I finished that up was, was McElroy a victim of the town? Himself? Or both? Was it justified? Did the authorities fail everyone causing this to play out? This seems like a good segue, since we're talking about small towns, to mention that a murderer in my town has a weird fetish, okay? Now, I'm a little upset by this because I had to serve jury duty for this pus person. I just kind of need to talk it, talk about it, get it off my chest. It's disturbing though, but everything that we talk about is disturbing. So dude carved people's eyes out, right out of the sockets, then puts his dick in the eye socket. So he's fucking the hole, using the blood as lube. He did this hundreds of times. And for some reason, he had a specific target that really turned him on. It was beekeepers. Yeah, beekeepers. I still remember the disgust on the face of the judge. She asked him how he could do something so heinous and ugly. His reply haunts me. Your Honor, personally, I think beauty is in the eye of the beeholder. So we're going to move on to number eight, the silent film actor's death. Let's go back to the 1920s, the silent film era. There was more glam Hollywood than you could shake a stick at. William Desmond Taylor was one of the best directors in the world and was considered to be a mastermind of the movie world. He was found dead in his apartment from a gunshot to the back. Newspapers and tabloids exploded with theories including jilted lovers, angry actors, and even ties to the mafia. You know, your standard fare. No items were taken. There was a large sum of unaccounted for money that was in his apartment when the police arrived. No murder weapon was found, but it was believed to be a small caliber gun. No one could imagine Taylor to have enemies or even a sordid past. But guess what? I'm gonna get into it. So there were a lot of suspects questioned, no one ever arrested, nor was any motive ever established. Officially, that is. 
His death ended up being the basis for a number of movies and books dealing with unsolved murders. Now we go to history.com, This Day in History. Murder in Hollywood, a tale of vice and vixen. So we obviously found some smut on the man. February 22, 1922. William Desmond Taylor's body was found in his L.A. bungalow by the Popo after responding to a call about a quote-unquote natural death. Lieutenant Tom Ziegler found actors, actresses, execs from the studio, all rummaging through the director's belongings. He also found Taylor lying on the living room floor with a bullet in his back. Now, this may indicate to some it wasn't natural. However, my argument is, it's completely natural to die after being shot. Taylor was 50 years old and had a few skeletons in his closet, as happens causing a nationwide scandal and proof to the nation's moralists of Hollywood's depravity. Yep, we're talking about that time frame. They start uh, ramping up here. Comedian Mabel Normand had been linked romantically with Taylor, but was sent to a sanitarium to recover from tuberculosis and later died. While she was away, Mary Miles Minter, a teenager, became a star in Taylor's silent films and fell in love with them. Charlotte Shelby, Minter's mother, disapproved of this relationship. A love note to Taylor from Mentor was found in his home, along with her nightgown in the bedroom. A sauce. Other damning facts? Mentor had once tried to shoot herself with the same type of gun used in Taylor's murder. Shelby had previously threatened the life of another director who had made a pass at her daughter, and her alibi witness received suspiciously large sums of money after the murder. No one was ever prosecuted for Taylor's death. The case remains officially unsolved. Many years later, in Minter's unpublished biography, autobiography, she admitted that she and her mother were at Taylor's bungalow on the night of the killing. Famous director King Vidor, I have not heard of him, but I like his name, I dig it, told people that Minter had ambiguously admitted that her mother had killed Taylor after finding her daughter at Taylor's home. Moving on to the LAist, I'm going to quote because this is juicy goodness. He was an inveterate liar, a deadbeat dad who abandoned his family and a drifter. Like many who flocked to Hollywood in its scandal-free salad days, he invented himself every day. He was occasionally subject to some sort of mental lapses where he would just disappear. There is a mental condition where this is known to happen, but it could have just been a clear cover-up for his many affairs. That's it. That's all the column says. They give me all that and then end it. I think they're a bunch of assholes, but I was able to find in classic Hollywood bios more info, alas. This gives more of a timeline and a breakdown of the suspects, which is good. Now, Taylor and film star Mabel Norman, they had dinner together at his home at about 8 o'clock, the neighbor said, and they thought they heard a sound like a backfire and saw a man walking out of the house. One of them said the person had an effeminate walk, quote-unquote, and was, quote-unquote, funny-looking. The next morning, Taylor's houseman, Henry Peavy, arrived at the bungalow and found him lying dead in the living room and called, who else do you call? The studio. Paramount Studio execs come out, clean everything out, anything that they think would be detrimental, letters, bootleg liquor, and even the crime scene itself. See, this occurred during the trial of Fatty Arbuckle, if you're familiar with that, along with drug addictions that were a new thing that were coming out about people at the time of Wallace Reed and Jack Pickford and the poisoning death of his wife, 
Olivia Thomas. Pickford, I believe, is a brother of the other famous Pickford. I didn't write it down. Look it up. Religious groups, of course, that sent them scurrying, and women's clubs were upset with the film industry saying it's they're so sinful and debaucherous, and they started to threaten to boycott the films. I guess the film execs were thinking that it would be a bad look for Dude to die under possibly scandalous conditions, so, you know, it's about them. This is where the hitman theory comes into play. There's talk that Taylor had become chairman of the board on an anti-drug commission he founded to keep drugs away from Mabel Norman and the rest of the studio. She, evidently, had a a 2,000-a-month cocaine and opium addiction, and this is in the 20s. Taylor set her up in a drug rehab, oversaw the board, seriously disrupting the drug biz for the dealers. Her body was in a weakened state from the past abuses of drugs and alcohol, and Norman, by all, Norman, by all accounts, was a very warm and generous friend, including to w- William Desmond Taylor, and she ended up dying of tuberculosis because of that in 1930. It's been said in one of her last statements, she said, I wonder who killed poor Bill Taylor. And this just makes me sad. The addiction, and he tried to help her. So let's move on to the suspects. Mary Miles Minter, Triple M, and to the triple, as the kids say. The golden-haired actress with astonishingly beautiful blue eyes was only 20 when Taylor was murdered and claimed they were engaged, which was not true at all. She often referred to him as my mate, even decades after his death, and was completely in love with him, a feeling that was not reciprocated. Now, it doesn't say if he was banging her, but alluded more to Mary being more serious about him than he actually was. Ed C. King was a friend of his and also just happened to be the special investigator for the LADA's office. So Dude later told True Detective magazine in 1930 about a supposed conversation that he had with Taylor at their shared athletic club. He says that Taylor relayed to him he was worried because a little girl was in love with him and he was old enough to be her father. He tells him, the DA, that she snuck into his bedroom at 3 a.m. and demanded that she stay or else she'd scream and make a scene. So he said to King he had taken her home, finally, but he didn't know how to handle this anymore. Three blonde hairs were found on his jacket and determined to be hers. Supposedly, Taylor and Minter had been witnessed driving past one another the day of the murder, and there are two theories about this. They passed each other's vehicles and waved, going on their merry way. Or, two, they stopped and spoke, which would have given her the opportunity to give him a hug and get said hairs on the jacket. Could she have snuck in that night, made herself available, and when he wasn't having it or was done with her, told her it was over and she shot him? The bullet holes in his vest and jacket were not aligned, and the powder burn specified Taylor was shot at close range with his left arm raised. Now, some suggest having his left arm raised was an embrace or going to embrace, but I don't think that necessarily, you know, it could be. Maybe he's pulling back from something, or he could be raising his hand up, hey, don't shoot me, crazy bitch. The shooter would need to be a little over five feet tall, describing all the women involved. Or someone would have to crouch and shoot Taylor at an angle. Minter did have a previous incident involving a weapon. In 1920, Mary had been locked in a room with her mother's gun, because that's what they say to do. 
and shots rang out. She pretended to play dead when her family came in and then jumped up and laughed. What a psycho. In Mary's home at the time of the murder, police located the same type and weight of bullet that was removed from Taylor's body. Minter and her mother were never prosecuted. There was a friendship between Shelby and the DA, Thomas Lee Woolwine, which makes me want to drink wine but not wear wool. Interesting. Rumors held out that she bribed all three consecutive DAs that were all convicted at some point or accused of bribery to to secure their freedom. She kept that connection, made it strong, and she was able to see the light of day. No, No bars in her future. Now the next suspect we have is Charlotte Shelby, Minter's mama. There's an allegation that Shelby dressed as a man and followed her daughter to Taylor's. When she found them together, she became enraged and shot him. So the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Mother and daughter both have a history of using a gun to show that they mean business. When daughter Mary became involved and then pregnant with director James Kirkwood, not only did she arrange the abortion, but she reportedly threatened him with a 38. This repeated itself with different men and different caliber weapons several times before she showed up at Taylor's one night in 1920 with her blue steel revolver, demanding to know if Mary was there. Luckily for Taylor, she was not. Edward Sands is the next suspect. Eddie was Taylor's houseman in 1920. That was a banner year, huh, 1920. Not only was he the houseman, he was also known as a fraud. He pretended he was British, but was born here in Ohio. He was a Navy deserter, but kept re-enlisting for some unknown reason under different names. So, did he think things would change in the military if he had a different name? Come on, it's the military. He was charged with embezzlement, theft, and much to Taylor's dismay, did the same thing to him during his second year of employment by forging a check for $5,000 and stealing his car and wrecking it. Nice. Accounts tell of Taylor getting strange phone calls in the weeks preceding his death. Late at night calls, hang up. He had shown his accountant, Taylor that is, the 5000 he kept in his house, and this was missing when his body was found. Yet his ring and 78 bucks was on him. Alas, Sands' alibi checked out and cleared, but the tongues were still a wagon that he may have been blackmailing Taylor. Margaret Gibson, a.k.a. Patricia Palmer, a.k.a. Pat Lewis. And this is a good one. I mean, they're all good, but this is intriguing. 1964. This old woman gave a deathbed confession to a friend's son, telling him she was once a silent film actress and shot Taylor all those years ago. No reason or scenario was provided. The old woman was known by neighbors as Pat Lewis, but was later found to be Margaret Gibson, who was indeed an actress working in Hollyweird and the same lot as Taylor in 1921. She also had worked with him in 1910 in both Denver and Hollywood, starring in 1914's The Kiss together. Then, unfortunately, she had her own drug addiction, which got her into legal trouble. She was also found guilty of being involved in a bribery ring. So, there's a speculation she could have been the one bribing Taylor for various reasons. What do you think, kids? Seems like this dude drove the women's crazy for a plethora of reasons. Or, was it a stranger who killed him? Hit me up on the Facebook page or Insta. Give me your thought, babies. Or your thought babies, which I think ideas are 
their thought babies. We are going to go on to number nine, the locked room murder. Again, we're staying in the 20s. Police found a dead body from a gunshot wound in the back of a room locked from the inside, and it did not have a keyhole. No weapons found. There was no other way in or out except by the door. The police had a hard time even getting in. They had a kid crawl through the air ducts and unlock it for them. No one has ever figured out how the murder was committed or by whom. So when I was looking up other sources, Wikipedia let me know that the locked room or impossible crime mystery is a subgenre of detective fiction in which a crime, almost always murder, is committed in circumstances under which it was seemingly impossible for the perpetrator to commit the crime or evaded detection in the course of getting in and out of the crime scene. So this made me think initially this was more of an urban legend than an actual murder. Then... Morbidology gave me something, of course. This is from October of 2017 by Emily Thompson. Isidore Fink, 1929, New York City. Isidore Fink's body was found full of bullet holes. It was a locked apartment with no entry or exit point, no weapon. He was a Polish immigrant that opened a laundry on East 123rd Street, so, you know, living the American dream. He had a ground floor apartment big enough to work and live in on 132nd Street, which was known to not be safe. Due to this, he never left a window or door unlocked and would only grant entry to his apartment to those he knew. All windows and doors had multiple bolt locks. March 9th. So Dew gets back from delivering some laundry to clients around 10 p.m. His neighbor runs to the Harlem Police Department to report hearing gunshots and a thud not long after. Patrolman Albert Cattenborn shows up first, finding the door locked from the inside. So he tries to enter through this little window, but it was nailed shut from the inside. So, you know, he breaks it. He didn't fit to be able to wedge himself inside. So there had been a crowd gathering and he picked a small child out and said, hey, you go shimmy through there and unlock the door. Fink's body was found on the floor. Two bullet wounds pierced his chest and another was through his left wrist. The only fingerprints found belonged to Fink. The door had been bolted shut. The windows were unbroken and locked from the inside, and again, no weapon. Nothing had been stolen, no money. The money that was on Isidore was found in his pocket. So the opinions varied. Was it suicide? But the coroner said the man had been murdered. The position of the body and location of the wounds indicate beyond doubt that Fink could not have shot himself. And of course, what about the gun? There's no gun. I mean, how else did he do it? Some people said a death contraption. Maybe something was hidden in the walls. So he shot himself that way with this contraption with that had a remote control. But nothing was ever found by the police. That may have spurred, maybe it was the initial story that spurred all this subgenre about impossible crime mysteries, but all I know is I've been to some of those uh, locked room things, and I can never, I can never figure out how to get out. So, you know, let's move on to our last one. Number 10 is Aton Pats. Now, again, this is another one involving a child. Maybe you've heard of this. He's the boy on the milk carton. This case, his case, was credited with being one of the main reasons many child protection laws came into being. 
And this happened in 1976. Aton's mom allowed him to walk to the bus stop by himself for the first time, and he was never seen again. He had been asking her, begging her, let me go, let me go, I'm old enough, and no, 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 and then she finally did it, and this happened. There were many suspects over the years, including a former babysitter that was cleared. Pedro Hernandez eventually confessed to the murder, but because there's little evidence besides his confession, many feel that's still unsolved. I found crime reads from May 26, 2020 by Paul Renfro, giving more specifics, saying Aton was born in 1972, which is the same year I was hatched. And oh, if you haven't seen his picture, look it up. He looks like just the all-American little boy that could be seen on any soccer field on a Saturday morning. This was in New York City during the time frame when New York was bankrupt and crime was at an all-time high. This says that six-year-old Aton vanished on May 6th. He stopped into a bodega, got a soda for lunch, and this is where P Pedro Hernandez comes in. He was an 18-year-old worker, and he says in his confession later that he lured Aton to the basement, telling him he would get a soda down there. Hernandez said he then choked him. The little boy placed his body in a plastic bag, placed the bag in a box, and threw it away in a dumpster. Now, those details were not revealed until 2012, after his family begged him to end the wait. Aton was considered missing from 1979 till 2001, when a judge finally declared him legally dead. A resident of the area said Aton's disappearance marked a turning point for the city, transforming it from a fear city to a heavily fortified and sanitized financial wonderland. So then we talk about the 80s, and we got Wall Street and all that stuff. Up until that time, the Aton's Pats' attorney told CNN, all of us felt that our children had free reign in the streets. And I think that really says a lot because, you know, we all ran around in the 70s, you know? Since 1983, May 25th, the date of Aton's disappearance, has been observed as National Missing Children's Day. Now, I did find another article cr from Crime Museum, and this says that the suspect wasn't the babysitter, it was a friend of the babysitter who was arrested in the 80s on other child molestation charges in Pennsylvania. Aton's parents did file a civil suit against Ramos, this dude, in uh, 2004, and won two million in damages, but the criminal case was left technically unsolved. Now, this investigation was reopened in 2010, and two years later, police excavated the foundation of a home owned by one of Pates' neighbors. Now, I remember hearing this. They used the ground-penetrating radar to see if they could find the body. But while the search yielded nothing, it received lots of media coverage, and an influx of new calls and tips came about the case. These tips pointed authorities to the direction of Pedro Hernandez, like I said, who had been an 18-year-old stock boy at the bodega, and the bodega was right beside Aton's bus stop. The tip revealed that Hernandez had admitted to previously killing a young boy while he was attending an open confessional in his church in 1982. When they questioned his family, his brother-in-law and wife confirmed the story and that the confession was a longtime open family secret that had anxiously been discussed again with news of the basement excavation. Hernandez was interrogated in 2015 and eventually confessed to what happened at the basement. 
The first trial was declared a mistrial after the jury became gridlocked at an 11 to 1 verdict due to the lack of a body and the defense citing psychological evaluations that suggested Hernandez may have had multiple mental illnesses that would have tainted his confession. Hernandez was then retried with a new jury who found him guilty of kidnapping and murder. After an unsuccessful appeal attempt, Hernandez was sentenced on April 18, 2017 to 25 years to life in federal prison. Landmark moment in child abduction investigations, it says. Thanks to Julie and Stanley Peitz's relentless search efforts, it was one of the first missing children's cases to coordinate a publicity campaign nationwide. Some people say it's it's still not solved, but I don't know. If it's an open secret, and I kind of have an issue with that being on an unsolved, but, you know, I haven't looked in to see what he says and the evidence really against him, but if it was something that happened in the family, everybody knew about it, you gotta wonder. Well, we have finished all 10 horrifying unsolved murders. Of course, as usual, some were more difficult than others to get through, but we did it. If you happen to know anything about any of these unsolved murders, please reach out to the authorities. Talk to family and friends and get the word out. That was my attempt at being Billy Jensen, who I would be lightly stalking at CrimeCon next month, but he is not there with any of his podcasts. Him, Paul Holes, and Keith Morrison are my true crime boyfriends. So there's that. Queen V is calling me back into the lab with promises of salty fish head goodness, so I must depart. Good night, dear lab rats. Remember, everyone must find their truth, and mine is Abby Normal. Enjoy the experience and experiments of Murder Lab. Go to Facebook, Instagram, and MurderLabMedia.com for updates. Share with your friends, those you created in a lab or not. As long as they can subscribe and listen, we'll take it. Murder Lab is available on Google Play and iTunes. The RSS feed is on MurderLabMedia.com for you to plug into your podcast app. We can always use more lab rats. <laughs>